Hello, 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 my fact friends and fiends. We are back. Season 3. The real season 3. And it will be happening soon. We are just putting those finishing touches on a lovely set of confusing stories. Quests with no ends, as of yet. And potentially some of those updates we have on cold cases that we discussed in previous seasons. But we also have paranormal or extraterrestrial phenomenon to discuss as well. Remember, we're here to talk about the facts, as reported. Some old voices, some new voices, and some voices in between, which would be mine, are going to be here once again. So get ready with a trip down memories memory lane with these friend-voted favorite episodes. Don't worry, I didn't go for the Cecil Hotel or anything. We remember that one. And if you don't, please feel free to hit pause and go back. Nate Ruger and I take turns blowing each other's minds. However, without further ado, I bring you The Los Feliz Murder House from Season 1. I hope you have as much fun as we did the first time we did this. And get ready for those new episodes coming soon. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with an acute obsession of true crime, caught discussing tragic events with unwilling participants, or kept awake at night by the paranormal or just plain absurd, you've found the right place. All others, beware of catching this dangerous bug as we begin to talk about the facts. again friends and welcome back to let's talk about the facts so we are a podcast about cold cases bizarre phenomena and the wildest stories i felt like researching so yeah that's about it um make sure to follow us on instagram or twitter or both whichever is your preference at t-a-l-k-a-b-t facts um you know, it's funny, you can have too long of a handle, so we shortened it up a little bit. Um, yeah. So, funny story, though, Alex. My sister-in-law heard, you know, the ep- one of the episodes for the first time, mm-hmm. and honestly, this podcast really is just for her. <laughs> She's the only one who loved Unsolved Mysteries as much as I did. Oh, nice. And she listened to the intro and she was like, did she get sponsorship already? Why is there a commercial? Oh, it's not a commercial. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. I should have gone into commercials. <laughs> Used car commercials. That's my missed opportunity. You know, it's not too late. It's really not. Yeah. Especially in pandemia. Anything goes. Indeed. Um, especially at the beginning of the Screaming 20s. Am I right? Oh, yeah. For sure. Um. But yeah, and also email us some stories that you'd like to hear researched. We actually have a few in the e- in the email, in the inbox. In the old email. In the old email, ye old email, um, that we are uh, putting on the docket to do. So thank you guys for sending in uh, some ideas. We're really excited about those. I say we as the royal we because we all know... I will be the one doing that research. (laughs) So, um, but today, after that very, very intense episode last week with Vaughn, who Mm -hmm. you guys will get to 
visit with again next week as Alex takes a break. Um, I decided to do one that is kind of an initiation to being an Angelino. So, Alex, how long have you lived here in L.A.? Um, a little over a year now. So it's time. Like, it, it it's time yeah. for you to hear the story. Yes. So, of course, you don't find this one on Wikipedia. Like, it doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I was kind of miffed about that. Hmm. And I was like, you know, I could actually make one, but then I'm not that person. So I didn't. That's fair. Um, but this is a case from the 50s, and... Uh, once you've lived in Los Angeles long enough, someone tells you the story. That's just how it goes. It's not really that pub, like widely known outside of Los Angeles that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. But it's delightful. It's bananas. It has craziness. It has some paranormal aspects. Ooh. And, you know, it's fun. It's back to a simpler and complicated time. Yeah. And so, just so you know... Because non-Angelinos like to uh, rate our crime based on the Black Dahlia. So that case is only 12 years old at this point. Okay. Um, So City of Angels, Tinseltown, has its very own murder mansion. What? So this is the Los Feliz murder house. Oh, okay. Yes. So, here's your context. Are you ready? Yes. Welcome to 1959. My dad is four years old. Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you weren't going to notice, and then you did. I did. Alaska becomes our 49th state, and then Hawaii gets stolen to be our 50th state. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a whole episode on that. Just you wait. Yeah. It's not really an unsolved mystery. It's not really a cold case. We know what happened, but we're going to talk about it. We should. Um, But, you know, if that is news to you and you need to know that answer now, Google is free. It's right there. Yeah. Um, It's a bad look for us, but it's 2020. We all know it. So Sleeping Beauty is released, and that's Disney's 18th animated feature film. And also, The Day Music Died, if you know that phrase from Mm -hmm. the song American Pie. Pie. Yeah. That's my birthday buddy, Don McLean. What, what? Um, I'm actually a big fan of his music in general. But (laughs) um, that reference is to the day a plane went down with Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, unfortunately killing all occupants on board, including the pilot, Roger Peterson. Don't want to leave him out. Mm Mm-hmm. So, a raisin, in a, sun, a raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry opens on Broadway, and she's the first black woman to have her work performed on Broadway. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what, sorry, what year? 1959? 1959. Wow. Okay. Um, and, of course, you know, we want to celebrate black excellence always, and we want to make sure to talk about those facts because they're incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you haven't seen or read A Raisin in the Sun, hop to it. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, also relevant to what we're doing here, the Twilight Zone premiered on my birthday. So I am birthday buddies with the Twilight Zone. Wow. And Don McLean. I mean, and it's so important to know (laughs) who your birthday buddies are. It's true. Google's free, guys. Look it up. Yeah. Um, it makes so much sense. 
So we're also still in the Cold War. That won't end until 1991. (laughs) I was alive in the Cold War. That blows my noggin. Yeah. Um, And we're in the space race. Dun, dun, dun. Ah. And so that, my friends, is a very, very brief 1959. And I only picked the facts I cared about. (laughs) So, (laughs) but we're going to zoom in on Los Angeles, California. The place we call our home. (laughs) Any listeners who are not from here are like, shut up. (laughs) Believe me, you don't want to be here right now. We are on fire and melting. It is very hot. Oh, God. So hot. I have to eat a popsicle to, like, cool down. Yeah, there's just no way to describe how terribly hot it is. Yeah, it's like when Northerners are like, you don't know cold. And I'm like, you are correct. (laughs) I do not. I don't want to know it. But let me tell you when I say you don't know hot. Yeah, I knew cold. And now I know hot. So Yeah. Oof. Ugh. <sighs> Gross. Yeah. So we're going to hop into this story. 1959. Um, it's December 6th, 1959. All you need is a light jacket here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the neighborhood of Los Feliz in Los Angeles, California. So Los Feliz, for those of you who aren't me... So basically Alex and everyone else. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, It's a large neighborhood next to Hollywood. um, And it encompasses part of the Santa Monica Mountains and parts of Griffith Park. It was named after a colonial uh, Spanish-Mexican land grantee, Jose Vicente Feliz. So the two main pronunciations, Feliz, one from the Feliz family, and Feliz, meaning happy, are kind of, you know, some people want to be like, oh, it's pronounced this way. Technically, it has two pronunciations, and, you know, it doesn't really matter. I say Los Feliz, mm-hmm. uh, because I like the happy. Uh, technically, Mickey Mouse was born here, because Walt Disney drew him at his uncle's house on Kingswell Avenue. Oh. Fun fact. Interesting. Um, another building that is uh, in this... Uh, neighborhood that's really famous is the Ennis House, Mm E-N-N-I-S. It's a major house designed by the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, yeah. That might ring some bells Mm -hmm. because he's famous for designing a number of iconic buildings, such as the Guggenheim Museum, which is a very fun word to say, um, and Falling Water. Totally worth Googling if you don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't really, you know, describe in a podcast these buildings yeah I mean, so just look look at it just, that's easier yeah maybe i'll put it on our instagram mm. um because i have been uploading relevant pictures i uploaded the obelisk from episode two and i was uh oh, the obelisk yeah i learned what an obelisk was <laughs> <laughs> there you go learning we do it every day um so also, another episode, we will talk about his son, Lloyd Wright. Not going to tell you which one, but uh, coincidentally, Frank Lloyd Wright passed away, or did pass away, in 1959. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. <laughs> so, back to our story. Mm-hmm. We're back in our story. We're going to Glendower Place, to a Spanish Revival-style mansion that's about 5,050 square feet located on a hillside it was originally built for harry s schumacher i didn't care to look him up Mm -hmm. designed by architect harry e wiener 
I didn't look him up either because I was scared. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but that's, what? That is a name. That I know I have. certainly got a name. I have a stupid name too, but Harry E. Wiener, like, bruh. I feel like he was either, like, mercilessly mocked or really leaned into it. I really leaned into it, so, you know. Yeah, that's fair. Dun, da, da, dun. Choose your own destiny, Harry. Well, he Good chose luck. it. He yeah. designed a three-story mansion that had four master bedrooms. Oh. So which is the master master bedroom? You know? I, I don't know. I guess whatever the biggest one is. Because it also had three more bedrooms that aren't master enough. Oh. A library. A ballroom with a bar. A three-car garage on the street with another two-garage car garage. Sorry, two-car garage. That was up around the bend, and it had beautiful lawns and gardens. Ooh. Could you imagine? No. I, I can't. <laughs> what would really. I do with that? I feel like I would take up maybe one-tenth of that house and be like, okay, what do I do with the rest of this? Right. Like, could you try decorating that place? I'd be like... I mean, um, I feel like... I would just invite a lot of my friends to come live with me in this big house. And be like, like, what do you do? Rent is cheap, y'all. Like, here you go. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know what to do with that much space. Um, so Schumacher, that guy, he died in 1932. And things happened between then and later. Mm-hmm. And then so the Perelson family, they move in sometime during the 1950s. When? I don't know. Also, there's also staff quarters. And, like, if this house was for rent, I bet you the rent for, like, the staff quarter would be, like, 2K. Oh, for sure. Like, it's just a bedroom and a bathroom, but they'd be, like, $2,000. It's <laughs> so upsetting. Ah. I love rent prices. It's so fun. Welcome to Los Angeles, all of you who don't <laughs> live here. <laughs> so pressing on. Our depression will stay where it is. So, let's talk about the event. The Perelson family. Yes. We have Dr. Harold Perelson, a heart surgeon with an Inglewood clinic, which is impressive because Inglewood is pretty far from Los Feliz. Yeah. That is all the way down south. Um, he's also a professor of cardiology at USC Med- School of Medicine. Oh. And the author of several research articles in established medical journals of the time. He had a wife, the gorgeous Lillian. I'm just saying she's gorgeous, but she's probably gorgeous. The gorgeous Lillian. And they had three children together, Judy, Joel, and Debbie. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, in 1959, Harold, he's 50 years old, and he's doing pretty well. Um, there's no outward signs of conflict, or so we thought. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Uh, they look like a perfect family. But if we have learned anything from a crime show literally ever. I feel like they're probably not perfect. They're not perfect. Something's going to happen. Shocking. There's a shark in this water. Oh, no. Dun, dun, dun. Close the beaches. We got to close those beaches. Yeah. Um... So it wouldn't make sense that in the middle of the night, 18-year-old Judy would wake up at 5 a.m. with a throbbing headache. Mm. 
She wakes up and she sees her father standing over her with a ball peen hammer in hand and her head bleeding. Oh. So instinctively, Judy screams. Fair. I would too. Yeah, I would too. Like, you know, you see your dad's got a hammer, your head's bleeding. No, I think I'm good. I mean, ABC here, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so for those of you who don't know the specificity of a ball peen hammer, it's also called a machinist's hammer. It's used in metalworking. It has two heads. So one is flat and the other one called the peen is rounded. So instead of having the prong side to like pull nammers, nails out of the wall, (laughs) nammers. Good old nammers. Good old nammers. That's my middle name. There you go. Um, It has like another head that's rounded just a little bit and that's, you know, metalworking. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me. I didn't go to school for metalworking. Um, so anyway, we're going to go back to Judy. I left you in a really important place there. Judy is screaming. And she has to fight her father off. And it takes everything in this 18-year-old legend's body to finally break free of him and get downstairs. And she runs out of the house to the neighbors. I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait a minute. What about Joel and Debbie? Where are they? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to editorialize for a moment. All right. I'm actually kind of glad she didn't stop to check on her siblings. Because, you know, again, from every crime show we have ever seen, how many times does that just go bad? Oh, yeah. Like, all the time. Like, she got hit in the head with a hammer. Like, she screamed. She did her best. Mm -hmm. You know? The rest of it is up to them. They got to use common sense. I'm sorry. This is, we're going to see what happens. But she honestly, I think her human slash animal instincts was got to get the fuck out of here. Check you later. Hope you survive. But she did the best she could. I think she's like, "Mm." I don't, and also like, I don't think she had all of her senses. I mean, again, I'm still editorializing here, but I'm betting she like, had to drag herself down those stairs. She just fought off her father. She's probably disoriented. That mm-hmm. probably freaking hurt. And she's woken from her sleep. Who knows? But do I judge her for not looking for her siblings? Not even a little bit. Like, head injury? Yeah. What if she didn't even like her siblings? I don't know. I'm just not judging her. Yeah, I so feel like anyway. at that point, you're just, you know, in fight or flight, so... Yeah. You just gotta go. She's pro-Judy, pro-living, and I'm pro-Judy. Anyway, so her scream, though, it did wake her younger siblings, Joel, who was 13 at the time, and Debbie, who's 11. Mm -hmm. Harold sees that they're both awake, and he tells them, I'm gonna say allegedly because I could not cite that, but he says, go back to bed, this is a nightmare. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I don't like that. (laughs) Even in the 50s, those babies knew better. Good. They took off like their older sister, and they got the fuck out. Hell yeah. They were some smart cookies. Be free, children. Go. Get out. You know? Like, Mm -hmm. that's when you're like, yeah, the nightmare is you, Dad. Right. Yikes. So, Judy got to the home of a neighbor. His name is Marshall Ross, who called the police. She was sent to the hospital, and she was treated for skull fractures. Jeez. If you've ever seen Peaky Blinders, there's this, like, one episode where he had skull fractures, and it was wild. 
I imagine that's what happened to this poor girl. And I'm like, um, hmm. Mm. Oh, it's terrifying. So there was one article I read that had like a different take on what happened than another article. So I'm going to give you both. Why okay. not? Because, you know, have all the facts. Yeah. So one article said that, and this was one from 1959, Marshall Ross entered the Perelson home before the police arrived, and he found Harold agitated but still alive when he saw him. He told Harold to lie down, and apparently Harold listened and disappeared into a bedroom. Mm-hmm. That's one article. Hmm. Okay. Never heard about that anywhere else. Yeah. So just put that in your noodle, and then we're going to move on to where everybody else is. All right. So I know what you're thinking. All the babies are accounted for. Yes. But what about gorgeous Lillian, the Perelson matriarch? What's she up to? What happened to her? Probably nothing good. I'm I'm worried. Uh, Yeah. She says, knowing what happened. (laughs) So police arrive on the scene, and they begin to search this mansion. They find the body of 42-year-old Lillian and her blood-soaked bed. She had been bludgeoned to death while she slept. Mm -mm. Rude. No. Rude. Yeah. So police continue the search, and they find Harold's body on one of the beds. Then I have articles that claim it was either his bed or one of the daughter's beds. And then I have an article and other sources that say... He was found in the bathroom. Oh. I like the bathroom, so we're going with the bathroom. Also, that was the most articles. Okay. So, but I just don't know how it's that controversial, because, like, where did you find the body, though? Right. I mean, maybe the police weren't keeping, like, good records, or, like, no one photographed the crime scene. But these are the 1959 articles. Yeah. Oh, I don't... I'm not sure. Maybe it's just people making up their own story to fit the story. Drama. Mm-hmm. But, like, I mean, somebody should have been like, no, we found the body here. Right. Wild. Sheesh. Whatever sells the papers, I guess. <laughs> just kidding. This thing. We found it somewhere else. Yeah. So the coroner reports that he had overdosed on barbiturates. Okay. I vaguely know what those are. Vaguely. <laughs> um, From, like, TV. They are a type of pill. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think there's many types of it. It's like, if you were to say, like, fentanyl or something. Right. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a, th- that's a thing. The, yeah. That's a medicine thing. I don't, mm-hmm. know. I don't know. So, next to him was the ball peen hammer, a okay. pill bottle, mm-hmm. embrace yourself, a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy. And I miffed about this because, like, really? That's too on the nose. So the book was open to the following passage. Oh, no, it's going to give him more on the nose. Oh, no. Okay. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within the forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Hmm. Okay. I'll let that sink in. Yeah. Wow. In all the wrong ways. Yeah, this feels a little convenient. It does. Yeah. Apparently, 
there was some financial difficulties in the family that people had kept hush hush. Mm. So Judy wrote a letter to an aunt saying, on the merry-go-round again, same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. I definitely didn't speak like that at that age. Like, no. if I had said that, it'd been like, yo, my parents fucked up again. Shocker. <laughs> Guess who's broke again? It's us. It's us. Woo. You know, different times, different phrases, same gist. Yeah. I, I enjoy it, though. Judy... Judy has a knack for words. Yeah. Judy, yeah. she's too nice. Yeah. That was also a really, like, diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> yeah. I would have been like, they suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so all of the children are going to go live with out-of-state relatives. And the mansion is closed up, boarded up, all of that. But little did anyone know. Like, that's ra- That's weird. That's a story, but little did anyone know. It would be closed up like a time capsule. Oh. So the property is going to be sold in a probate auction. Action. I don't know what I wrote. A year later to Emily and Julian Enriquez. Oh. Maybe it's Enrique. I don't know. I probably should have looked that pronunciation up and I didn't. Um, but get this. They never moved in. But it became a storage unit. They just dropped their shit with the Perelsons for decades. Oh, They okay. never moved any of the Perelson shit out. Lots of urban legends, lots of viewers. Mm-hmm. So this is my thing. If you're going to buy a house, why are, why are okay. you making it a storage unit? And why are you buying a multi-million like million dollar house? To make it a storage unit. Right. I have so many questions. So, yeah, never lived in it. In 1995, Emily Enriquez passed away, and she left it to her son, Rudy. Guess what? He didn't move in either. What? (laughs) How many people are just using this place for storage? And that's in 1995. Like, so from 1959 to 1995. It was just a big storage locker. Mm-hmm. And, like, one of the most fabulous neighborhoods in L.A. Yeah, it seems weird. Like, you could just get a rental for that. Like, <laughs> I know! Why? Um, he didn't maintain it at all, either. Oh, my God. Well, and also, like, if you need to store your stuff for that long, like, what are you storing? Why don't you just, like, get sell it, it or donate it? Yeah, like, wh- why? I am of the mind, like, if you don't need it in your house then you don't need it but Especially that's just for me. like 30 years like like let it go <laughs> you haven't used it in 30 years i don't think you need it anymore honestly like you know El- put on elsa let it go mm-hmm. don't give a crap yeah so it just became this decaying art piece again in one of the most fabulous neighborhoods angelina's love wow in 2009 rudy told the la times I don't know that I want to live there or even stay there. But, you know, at this point, I'm like, he's a genius, smart. He's seen movies. He knows what's going to happen. Right. So literally did nothing to upkeep it. I think for over 50 years, neighbors had to eventually maintain parts of the house. And then the city intervened to have Rudy make certain repairs. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. 
their homeowners association was like, eh, this is not up to our standards anymore, so. <laughs> you have to fix the crumbling wall. <laughs> <laughs> we need you to upkeep the lawn a little bit more. Oh, you should see the pictures. They're fantastic. Oh. Um, so Rudy was asked about supernatural occurrences, and he said he never witnessed it. But he was never there. So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. So, of course, he wouldn't witness them, sir. Mm-hmm. Rudy Enriquez uh, passed away in 2015, and the house would be sold yet again in a probate sale the next year for a ridiculous amount. I'm sure. So, Lisa Bloom, a Los Angeles attorney who I didn't look up past that, purchased the home. For $2.289 million. Wow. To renovate it. Oh. Mm-hmm. But then the property goes back up for sale for $3.5 million in 2019. Did she actually renovate it? She, uh, blah, blah, blah. As far as I know, I'm just going to see if I wrote that down. So as far as I know, she gutted it. So she took all the, the mm-hmm. stuff out and the okay. ephemera and all of that. And, like, took it down to the studs. Mm-hmm. And then did, like, the base work and, like, fixed it from there. Oh. And then put it back up for, like, somebody else to take over. Got it. Okay. So she kind of flipped it. I may be wrong on that, but that's from what I understood of the articles. She, like, half flipped it. Yeah. Because mm. I feel like from, like, how bad it was... I mean, if you didn't live in a house for almost oh yeah, I'm years, sure that whole place needed to just be fixed. Honestly, set on fire. We don't yeah. know what lives in there now. Yeah, true. Um, but she, as far as I'm aware, it sold again, and Zillow lists as its zestament, which makes it sound zesty, but it's not, <laughs> as four million one hundred and ninety-seven thousand and two hundred dollars wow i am so upset because that's a lot of fucking money for a murder house that's just been dilapidated and run down yeah i mean that's so much money for like any house but especially especially that i'm just saying some dad is going to move his family in there and be like this is the move that we really need to save our family (laughs) and honestly at that price I'm going to really enjoy reading those articles. Yeah. I can't. Your family is past that, my good dude. No, honestly, they had it coming. Like, okay. Chicago, that number, I will be singing it as I am reading on my phone. Yeah. You had it coming. Mm-mm. You had it coming. <laughs> like, how many fucking bedrooms do you need, bro? So many. So fucking many. Okay. So, those are the facts. Let's get into our discussion of the speculations. Okay. Speculates, and I titled this section "The Spooks and the Spookiers." All right, <laughs> so dumb. Um, so nobody knows why Harold Perelson snapped that night. So we have financial problems, but mm-hmm. um, some people had said that, of course, after the fact, he had shown suicidal tendencies before, and then. There was speculation like a mixture of medication may have pushed him over the edge. Mm. So, Perelson and his parents, no, no, sorry, Perelson's parents, that's a really hard thing to say, (laughs) 
had left Eastern Europe and come to the United States for the American dream, which doesn't exist anymore. I don't know if it ever existed. Unfortunately for these people, it did. Hmm. So he was a first generation American born in New York. You know what? Maybe it didn't. I'm going to take that back. We'll see. Yeah. Well, no, we we know how the story ends. (laughs) Fair. We're learning the beginning and we're like, you know, I don't think it did. (laughs) Um, so Harold Perelson would soon achieve the whole dream in a bag of chips. Um, she lied. (laughs) I mean, I had already written it down. It's fine. It's okay. (laughs) He bought the Glendower house for, you want to guess in 1969, wait, 59, how much that house was worth? And we know. A million dollars. 60,000 (laughs) dollars. Well, I overshot that. And in 2020 money, that was half a million. Oh, okay. All right. But, like... Well, no, half a million. You said a million, so half a million. I said a million. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's still overshot, but it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah, so in 1959 dollars, that would have been 120,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You still overshot it, but not, right. too, not as bad as you thought you did. Not, not as horribly. Something no regular millennial could dream of. <laughs> I mean, could you yeah, imagine no. what I would do for having like $10,000 in my bank account? Ugh, be so nice. Jeez. But by all accounts, he did it. He got that American dream and he made his parents proud. And they could say, my son, the doctor. I can't remember what movie that's from. Probably several, but more importantly, nailed that impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the snap so what made this snap happen he's gonna you know ball peen all of his family in the middle of the night so we're gonna talk paranormal because it's Los Angeles and that's what we do um, and that's what matters so we'll get back to reality at the end but my favorite LA rumors are so great (laughs) there are the fabled christmas presents so everyone who is already familiar with this story knows this bit so here's what we know and what we don't and a bit of the local legend so rumor had it that if you look through the window of the glendower house you would see still wrapped christmas gifts underneath a christmas tree because remember this happened on december 6 1959 however the belief is that the Perelson family was Jewish. So the tree would not have been theirs. So who did it belong to? Oh, weird. Unless they celebrated Christmas along with Hanukkah. And then, you know, you shot my theory out from under me. But whatever. Right. So I can't back up this rumor other than I was verbally told this. As mm-hmm. I am an Angelino and learned this story through word of mouth. But whatever. So anyway, you know how they had that year... Before it went to probate sale. Mm-hmm. So after the, f- um, after the house got cleaned up post-murder, blah, 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 blah. Before it sold, it was rented to a family for a short time after the murders. Mm-hmm. So the crime scene wasn't obviously there, but the furniture and all of their stuff was still there. That wasn't taken by the children Um, who had already left to go live out of state. Mm -hmm. The renters weren't aware of what had taken place, and 
they were like family friends of whoever was managing the estate at the time. Right. Um, and they were in desperate need of a place to live for a while. And so as far as I know, close to the one year anniversary of the crime, if not on the day, they were finally run out of the house by a paranormal activity, leaving presents behind. Like the tree and the presents and their stuff. So their stuff was also with the Perelson stuff. Oh. Before the Enriquez's t- uh, took over. Mm-hmm. So. Hmm. Okay. It was said that they heard like whispers and felt pushes and even felt voices in their head guiding them to do cruel things like push uh, one another down the stairs oh. or like stab someone with scissors. No. Um this is what I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I love. This is the kind of stuff that makes this move right for our family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is what's going to save our family right here. All of these voices telling us to, uh, to kill each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, quarantine, you know? Hey. Basically. But so that being said, if that was already there... Yes, we're going on the paranormal train, okay? I did not love Unsolved Mysteries for no reason. (laughs) If we're going on the paranormal train, just buckle up, stay on the train. If you don't believe in it, we're here for the giggles. So, one would say, then that was already there, and perhaps that's what guided Harold to kill everyone that night, and then himself. Mm Mm-hmm. But also... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> but also, if she did, so if uh, Lillian also celebrated Christmas, because as a not Perelson by birth, but by marriage, she could have been Gentile. And uh, they could have celebrated both Hanukkah and Christmas. Uh, and Christmas being so pervasive... It would not explain for the ephemera of the house that was dated after the murder, such as issues of magazines or food. SpaghettiOs is the most common thing people claim to have seen in the kitchen, but those were first debuted in 1965. Dun, dun, dun. Weird. Unless you got, like, some squatters breaking in, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Or. The Chef Boyardee. Or. Or ghosts. Also this. Ghosts who love SpaghettiOs. <laughs> I think it was more of like that attributed to like other people actually staying there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And getting run out. But then again, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird one. Right. Because there's mm-hmm. no record other than that like random family who was there for a hot second. Like anybody else living in the house because it was just used as storage for 30 years. Well, that, that random family isn't even recorded either. Oh, okay. Cause that's so it's, the, it's hearsay. Oh, that was 100% hearsay. I can't even back that up because <laughs> that was a rumor I was told. Right, right, right. I wish I could. I knew that it was going to be lovely and people would want to know it, but I can't back it up. I honestly can't even remember who told me. Hmm. I've talked about this story so much. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, though, regardless of whether or not it's true, that that's at least something that's being, like, floated out there. Yeah, especially... Associated with it. 
but the Christmas presents were gone. Like, there's no photographic documentation of the Christmas presents, Mm -hmm. but the fact that many people had the same story, very interesting. Right. Yeah. The other part that's very interesting, because I love the paranormal aspect, Mm -hmm. is that some accounts say that Harold was in a trance-like state, almost as if he was dreaming, or that his body had been taken over. Oh. Um... So this totally gels with the previous theory that mm-hmm. something otherworldly had set up shop in the Perelson house, invited or not, and was messing with Harold. But of course, why I don't like this theory is that it lets Harold off the hook. Right. And I'm not a fan. So, yeah, like, no. even though I love paranormal and this is really hilarious, I'm not a fan of that because it kind of takes the responsibility off of Harold. Mm-hmm. Um, but however at some point he must have snapped out of that trance saw what he had done to Judy and his beautiful wife Lillian and then taken his own life before the police arrived so knowing Los Feliz as well as I do as I work there from time to time it's very narrow and windy and those police sirens would like happen for a minute It'd be like Yeah, I'm done. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's it's a minute, and you can hear him for a while. So, he could have snapped to you. But, fun fact. When the original owner, Schumacher, died, the house was sold on December 6th, 1932, 27 years to the date before Harold's dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Hmm. So, some kawinky-dinks. Some interesting things. Yeah. I'm not saying the kids didn't play with, like, a Ouija board and decide, let's mess things up. Mm-hmm. But also, food for thought. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, as much as I do enjoy, you know, paranormal things and, and theorizing about ghosts and whatnot, I mean, I do kind of agree that you know attributing all of this terribleness to kind of like demonic possession or whatever or ghost possession uh or just influence from reading Dante's Inferno really late one night yeah uh does take the kind of responsibility off of off of Harold who did these things um yeah and i feel like it's a very interesting intersection of like you know, there were definitely probably some, like, mental health things kind of going on in there, and, like, that and its link toward, like, possession, um, or, like, ghosts and things. Like, it's, it has, it's a very fine line to walk, I think, um, and something that sometimes horror does well and something sometimes it definitely doesn't. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to think about, but I feel like as much as I love ghosts and stuff, it probably was just a dude who, you know, made a decision and then regretted it afterward. Oh, yeah. Big time. So let's hop into practicality. Yeah. Because, of course, we'll never know what was going through Harold's mind that night. But I do have a strong theory based on reality for what may have caused Harold to snip, snap, and attack that night. So remember those financial woes that Judy had written a letter about? The merry-go-round, yes. Oh, that Mm merry-go-round. So fun. We all would love to be off of it right now. Mm 
Yeah. Um, so first off, they owned the biggest fucking house. I also have two siblings like Judy, except I would be the Debbie in this situation. And that's a lot of space. Like, I'm just saying. Wow. I would love to be as far away from everyone as possible and have like a game room where I could stomp my brother and Dr. Mario from time to time, which is the biggest lie. I was the one being stomped. Mm-hmm. But four master bedrooms? Like, why? Maybe I'm too practical for this. Like, I'm not the one. But also, you could downsize. A little bit. Like, just a little. Maybe, yeah. like, three master bedrooms. Yeah. You could move to, like, the shabby side of Los Feliz Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Jeez. So it was re- I did a lot of digging, and I read this excellent article written by Joseph Maish, or Maish, M-A-Y-S-H, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced your name, on Medium, and he did an excellent job digging. He got into some stuff I couldn't do in quarantine, and, um, like, libraries, reading, like, the film-type newspapers and he described this really interesting legal battle Harold was in just before. Mm-hmm. So Harold was an injection specialist which is terrifying but you know, again too many crime shows for that to not scare the bananas out of me. So, you know uh, he filed for his own patent in 1938. So on December 30th of 38 oh wait that's when he found the patent. I can't read what I wrote. I'm sorry. Uh, so basically, it was an attachment to a hypodermic syringe. I'm not going to describe it because I don't think it went to market. And if it did, I don't care. Not important. What is important is the 1949 verbal agreement that he got into with Edward Schustack, who was supposed to turn this thing into a medical hit and split the profits. I think you know where this is going. Oh, yes. So the Perelson sunk. Get ready. $24,496 into it. Oh, wow. And a penny. Just kidding. No. Mm -hmm. So remember, just for context, they paid $60,000 for that McMansion. Um, And that was the 1959 monies. $7,000 came out of Lillian's personal savings. I have questions about that. You know? Yeah. But we're going to answer it. Okay. I feel like Lillian was smart. She was like, you know what, Harold? Maybe you're kind of an idiot. I'm going to have a personal savings, and mm, you're going to eat it. Fair. So, according to the court documents, 11 years pass in the development of this product, but Shoestack wasn't going to give Harold any money. So, July 21st, 1952, none of these dates matter. That's like history class. Who cares? Um, Harold files against Shoestack, saying he used a fake name and took away his rights to the device he invented. He sues for $100,000. But, as cases can be, it took forever, and the court awarded him only $23,956. Mm. That's a bummer. That's a thousand dollars less than what he invested, and nothing about the court costs. Yeah, that sucks. Mm. Yikes. Then on November third, nineteen fifty-seven, 
Remember that date, though. It's still okay. not important. So Judy had her siblings in the car, and when she crossed the cursed intersection of Vermont and Louisville's boulevards and her father's car, a 52 Oldsmobiles. Okay, but really, though, that intersection is cursed. I drive Louisville's Boulevard a lot and Vermont a lot, and I'd like to say, sucks. Wow. Anyway. All right. In 2020 monies, that car, the 52 Oldsmobile, would be worth a lot. And as cursed intersections go, the other driver said Judy went through on a red light, but Harold took that driver to court for negligence. He wanted $20,000 in damages for each each daughter and only $10,000 for his son. Like, wow. Dad, I'm only, yeah, I know, like, I'm only half as good as Debbie and Judy, but (laughs) for real, they were all injured. He did win, but he only got enough to cover the medical bills. Mm -hmm. It was another blow to the family finances with court fees and a totaled car. Harold had apparently a couple coronaries, which is an odd way to phrase it, but the money troubles seemed to weigh on him so bad it was affecting his physical health. Mm. So here's my theory. We have all of this troubles and he wouldn't move, which could have like, I bet you he could have sold that house for more than he had paid for it. Mm-hmm. As with all LA property. Um, I believe that he went down the family annihilator route. So for those who study criminal behavior would describe a family annihilator or someone who commits familial side um, often are trying to spare their family from indignity or tragedy. So this can either be real or imagined. So there are many, many examples of family annihilators from Robert DeFeo Jr., who's the source of the Amityville horror movies, to William Bradford Bishop, who used to be the oldest person on the FBI Most Wanted list. I think he recently got taken off because I think they assume he's dead. But is he, though? Will I cover that story? You betcha. (laughs) In my unprofessional opinion, but due to the research I've done, my theory isn't supernatural, but that Harold had a mental break and began the spree with Lillian. If Judy hadn't defended herself and woken up her siblings, there's a strong possibility he would have been successful. However, it seems like he either woke up from that mental break, which I don't think is really that possible, but it could, and realized what he'd done, or he figured he couldn't finish the work, so he took his own life. That's my theory. Do you have thoughts on that one? Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of sounds like uh, what happened here sadly enough I know like I don't think you know and I, obviously in 1959 I don't think they had as sophisticated names for things because they were still making them up but um, I do think unfortunately there are logical reasons when you look at evidence and the details of their lives mm-hmm. um there are unfortunately logical reasons if you take away emotion to why someone would do something as horrible as that. But at the same time, ethically and 
emotionally it doesn't make sense to me like why why that would happen but i know it's happened before and it could happen again right yeah i mean it's it's a i guess if you kind of get to a certain point you can talk yourself kind of into anything that's rough yeah and i get you know that's kind of what i think happened there is that for him you know seem to logically be the only way out so that's what he tried to do yeah because it is real or imagined is part of the definition right and i think i think to him you know that very much was the only solution and the other things that maybe we would have thought of um or his wife or any of the kids if it was floated to them like you know they would have come up with a different thing but yeah there would be like i'd like to not die yeah, like, why don't we just move? But t- to him, I think that's just what he decided to do. Yeah. And there were a lot of stressors. I mean, mm-hmm. in 1959, it wasn't like, you know, during a world war or anything like that. It was just somebody who wasn't equipped to handle failure, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it could be, you know, still the fallout from, like, all of the money he sank into that thing that the guy stole, and, like, his kids getting into a car accident, and, like, not having enough money to pay for the house. We don't know, you know, what the marriage was like, or, like, Mm -hmm. if they had any other, you know, struggles either within their extended family or within the house. Um, So I'm sure it just kind of all, you know, boiled up into a pot, and then finally just boiled over and... And he tried to do all that stuff. Yeah. And I think it's truly terrible because in no way is that acceptable behavior. Like, you have to take um, responsibility for those actions. And in this day and age, allowing it to get to that point is just not okay. Like, well, it's never been okay. But also finding help sooner rather than later if you feel like you're getting to that point or things are getting out of control it's one of those things that I think you have to take an inventory of your life and find the things to be grateful for but also this is a medical condition and you know one that many people I don't know know about Mm-hmm. Maybe they do. Maybe all of us true crimeys do know that, but because um, this is a true crime story, less of a paranormal, more of a true crime story. Even though there's so many stories of people entering the house and hearing footsteps, being bitten by crazy bugs, and like feeling someone following them in the house, those kind of things. I really think it's just the story of a disturbed man who couldn't handle failure and then the house being sealed up like a time capsule. When that happens, I just feel like it's your mind's going to play those games on you and it's impossible for it to not. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there probably, you know, is some kind of just like level of uncertainty in the air when you walk in the house, maybe from it being sealed up for, like, 30 years and just used as storage and no one's kind of lived there. Um, maybe, you know, what happens there does kind of leave some sort of, like, energy imprint around Mm -hmm. or something, but yeah, I do feel like 
even if you don't necessarily know what happened, you could still feel like something is wrong or off, and that could kind of lend into, you know, maybe you see a shadow move out of the corner of your eye, and it's actually nothing, but, like, it feels like it's something. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't really know. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's a very sad story of someone who, you know, was pushed over the edge and wound up killing his wife, and thankfully his kids made it out. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's kind of just like, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's not, like, a clean, a clean way to tie it up, you know, like, it's not, I feel like if it was, like, a fictional story, there would be, like, a nice kind of bookend to it, um, or some thematic relevance or something, but this is kind of just, like, terrible things happen every day, and sometimes there's, you know, not a reason that makes sense. True. I will say that, you know, the three children, they did live in anonymity for the rest of their lives, I hope. Mm-hmm potentially some of them are still alive and I would say this is the story of their survival that they did what they had to do to survive and honestly each and every one of them should be proud of themselves for you know getting out doing the right thing and hopefully they were able to have a fulfilling life afterward of course we don't know anything about them after right um they stayed away from the public eye and thankfully since this story was not publicized and there was no internet then they were able to essentially hide from press and stuff and that's honestly better than some survivors have gotten you know I do feel like the internet has brought the the story up a little in notoriety and Mm -hmm. but it lives in its own little place no wikipedia page of course but and it didn't have anything on like murderpedia or anything like that but I find it interesting that like you know it's one of those Angelina folklore stories and I do find it odd that I feel like because the media didn't follow the survivors around that they were able to have the opportunity to heal without being kind of like chased around and you know right um that's kind of like the positive part I take out of it um I hope they had some good lives or still having good lives yeah and I also find it interesting though because like a it's the folklore of being an Angelino. Like, you know how small towns have, like, do you know about the old house on Chester Street? And you're mm-hmm. like, no, I do not. It's kind of nice to still have that story, even though I'm just now telling everyone on the internet. But it's kind of nice. Like, you know, everyone knows the Black Dahlia because that was worldwide, but this one wasn't. Right. And, um, but for all of you who are listening, I highly recommend that you do not go try to see it. Um, that neighborhood will 100% call the cops on you. They have a circling uh, patrol. Uh, they will throw you out. And they hate all people who try to break through and see. So, of course, it's been gutted and sold. It might have work being done on it now. Um, the intent, I believe, is to get it on the market or do something with it. It was an eyesore for a very long time. If you do want to see what it looked like... Um, Several blogs have documented photographs. I will post links on Twitter and 
probably upload some photographs on our Instagram. Um, but I also just find it so interesting that it was kept as the time capsule. I think that's why this story just remains to be so interesting because the Enriquez family bought it and did nothing with it for all those years. Right. It just makes no sense to me. I wonder if they were just highly superstitious and there was something else going on there. Like, that's the part that has always caught me about this. Mm -hmm. And Rudy had no children, so he couldn't leave it to anybody and be like, hey, we bought this house because we know a bad spirit lives in it. But... Sometimes not knowing is the best part. You get to fill in your own blanks, you know? Yeah. Um, so, citations. I got a lot of information from real estate websites. <laughs> hmm. uh, com, medium.com. That was the really great article from Medium. Um, the lineup.com, strangeremains.com, scribble.com, latimes.com multiple times in laweekly.com of course when we finally get an episode up an episode oh god website up and running i will link the direct articles so you have a chance to read them for yourself yeah so yeah anything you want to say before we close this puppy down no i think uh i feel like we we covered a lot of ground today we did cover a lot of ground we talked about murder in los angeles that wasn't the black dahlia yeah what else is there in Los Angeles to do? Nothing. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I can't think of anything. All right. Well, we'll see Alex back in a minute because mm-hmm. it's not your week next week. No, it's not. Have fun with the aliens. What? <laughs> that was a spoiler alert. Oh, feel free to cut that part out. I'm not gonna because <laughs> okay. if they lasted this long, they get the spoiler. That's fair. Yep, yep. All right, we'll see you next week. Yeah. I'm Elizabeth Fury. I'm Alex Brown. Bye. Bye. This podcast was surprisingly produced by me. Original music by Miranda Miller. You can find us both on Twitter and Instagram at TalkAboutFacts. That's T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S. Or email recommendations to ltatfpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe out there, friends.